Today we have an incredible guest, Esme Gullick. In this episode, we go over chapters one through four of her awesome guidebook. It's called Coaching with Emotional Intelligence. If you want your own free copy of her guidebook, which you definitely do, send her an email. The email address is esmegullick, E-S-M-E-G-U-L-L-I-C-K, at mail.fresnostate.edu. Use the subject line, Coaching with Emotional Intelligence, and she will send you the guidebook for free. No questions asked, no issues. She'll send it right to you. You can use that to follow along as we're going going over it with her and asking her questions throughout the episode. All right, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome to another episode of the Screaming at Kicking podcast. I'm Tyler, this is Omar, and we are excited to announce a special guest we have with us today for you guys. Omar, take it away on the intro. You get all the credit for this one. I'm excited. So we have Esme Gullick coming on as a special guest. Esme is a sports educator, coach, consultant, with a special emphasis in emotional intelligence and leadership. Esme grew up in the UK. She won the uh, regional gold medal and she was a national finalist. She moved to the USA at the age of 18 on a division one swimming scholarship. She swam for Fresno State for four years. She captained the team for the final two years. She is a five time record holder at Fresno State School and the conference medalist. She's completed a bachelor's degree in physical education. She went on to pursue her master's degree in sports psychology alongside a graduate assistant coaching role and a teaching associate role at Fresno State. Her graduate work in emotional intelligence was nominated for kinesiology department's graduate project of the year. Nice. Since graduating, she has shared her graduate project with sports organizations around the world via webinars, consulting, and workshops. So first of all, I wanna say thank you so much for coming on. Perfect, thank you. Well, first of all, thanks Omar for the wonderful introduction. I appreciate you guys having me on and I'm very excited to be here. Awesome, let's get rolling. So just thinking on the topic of emotional intelligence in general, I am curious on kind of the story of how emotional intelligence came to be an important topic in your life and who you worked on it with and kind of what made you want to dig deep in this area. Of course, yeah. So uh, as Omar said in the intro right there, um, I was an athlete myself and uh, kind of, you know, rolling through college and being an athlete through college, you are almost at the peak of your physical game. And at this point, you're looking for uh, ways to improve outside of that physical game, uh, game because you're looking for anything that could help you improve. Uh, and I knew that one thing that held me back was uh, emotions as an athlete. And uh, I, was, I became really intrigued about things that kind of uh, wrapped around sports psychology, which is what led me to my uh, master's degree in sports psychology. I really wanted to know how uh, an athlete could change their mental game to change their performance. And uh, so we kind of, you know, we're ha a year and a half into the uh, program, 
had about half a year left and we were ready to start working on specialist projects. So your kind of end of degree uh, culmination of everything you kind of studied. And we were told, you know, you should pick an uh, area of expertise or an area of specialization that you really want to study and research. And I had just done a paper a couple of classes before couple of semesters before about uh, emotional intelligence in athletes because it was something that I was very interested in. And uh, a professor of mine and I uh, got, a lit- got to talking and at the time I was a coach. So I had just finished being an athlete and I was fortunate enough to become the coach of the team that I had once swam for. And, uh, you know, as a new coach, I was looking at ways to get better. And my professor said to me, well, how, how do you feel about this in terms of coaching with, with emotional intelligence? And I said, I, I honestly don't know. I don't know any research out there. And we did a little bit of digging and we found that there really wasn't any research in there in, in the great wide world or the big wide web, whatever you want to call it. Um, there was no research on emotional intelligence in coaching. There was stuff that kind of like, you know, popcorned off of that or like, you know, specialized in one very particular area, but in general, pretty much dry on that area. Uh, so that kind of got me thinking. And, uh, you know, that's where the project took off. And that's why I became interested in it. Awesome. That's really exciting. And this is exciting for me, just because it's an area that I lack so much in, I got like zero of it. So I'm excited to have this opportunity just to learn and improve here on my end. Awesome. So uh, I guess my first question, just diving into chapter one, going through athlete success, and the first thing that pops in my head, especially when I'm reflecting over my own experiences as a player, not as a coach, is why is it in the last 20 years has fitness been revolutionized, nutrition been revolutionized, even soccer analytics has been taken to a new level. Everybody watches Moneyball with Brad Pitt, and now they're like, oh, we need analytics in soccer. But why is psychology still so slow to evolve with the new fitness regimens, the, new, the, the evolution of tactics and all that stuff? Why don't enough teams at all levels incorporate some type of mental framework to help athletes deal with the pressure? Absolutely. I, I would totally agree on what you said there. Um, Psychology is kind of uh, in the back of a lot of athletes' minds, in the back of a lot of um, coaches' minds, except for, you know, that top-tier level of athletes who maybe have uh, kind of dug into it and, and had a look there. I would say psychology in general as a larger subject has always been a little bit behind uh, in in the general scope of things. So a lot of people will look at the physical things or, um, you know, the, the things that you can see before they'll, you know, dive into something that you can't see and can't measure. So one thing that I think uh, is a real disadvantage for psychology in many senses is that a lot, of, a lot of the time it's hard to measure. You can't make data for it. You can't really, you know, bring up these statistics like you could in analytics and sports analytics. Um, so it's, it's hard for people to see and be able to track progress for. So a lot of the time it's like, okay, if I can't track it, if I can't see my progress and I can't see exactly my results, then that's probably something that I'm going to resort to last. And I'm going to stick to the things that I know I can track and, and kind of keep an eye on. And especially as athletes and coaches, we live off of, um, statistics and we live off of data and stuff like that. Uh, we live off of results and times and weights and things like that. So 
it's it's hard to then try and focus on something that is primarily observational or qualitative rather than quantitative. And you know, so that's something I was guilty of at the start of my coaching career, especially when I'm talking to goalkeepers and the goalkeepers are proactive. They ask me questions. Okay, how should I set up my defense when we lose the ball in this side of the field or this side of the field or in transitions? How should I organize them? And I, th I had a conversation two days ago with my goalkeepers at UNCC who were asking about organization. I'm like, listen, girls, if you can't inspire them and hold people accountable, and motivate people to fight for you, it doesn't matter what the tactics are. That that goes out the window. So you can I can tell you how to organize them, but we conceded three goals in eight minutes in practice, not in a game situation, because the whole team's body language was below par. So that's something that we needed to to uh, to address. Um, but also, I just have one more leading question into that. How much of it is also attributed to, to psychology and sports psychology being a taboo and a stigma? So only players with depression really talk about psychology and all that nonsense that, that we know is not true. Right. I definitely think that there is a stigma around sports and athletics and athletes in general. You know, athletes are seen as tough people, strong people, people with grit and determination. And often when that isn't the case, if, if an athlete is losing that sense, um, then that's when it becomes a scary topic to try and t t tackle. Because you're basically admitting to yourself that you aren't the strong, determined athlete that you want to be. And that might not be the case. You might need uh, sports psychology services for many different reasons. It's not just about, you know, being depressed or being... Uh, or lacking determination or things like that. There's a plethora of different reasons you would see a sports psychologist or uh, a mental performance consultant. But you um, often, when you're looking into your emotional intelligence game or your emotions in general, you're basically telling yourself that there's something, there's something that's not up to par here and uh, it needs to be worked on. And that's kind of tough to face as an athlete. Yeah, and I, I remember watching a press conference between... Carl Froch and George Groves, two boxers in the superweight division in England. And Carl Froch, who scraped through the first fight, decided to see a sports psychologist. He admitted he got wound up. He let the opponent get under his skin. It affected his performance. And in the rematch, he was impeccable. He was not getting sucked into any silly arguments with the opponent. His body language was calm. And he executed the perfect game plan in the rematch. And he just killed, he killed George Groves in the rematch. So I, I definitely see it uh, from multiple facets as well. Now, with regard to the document itself, I think it's on page six um, where we you had the domino effect. And mm -hmm. that's something we'll have up for our viewers to see. Could you please go through what the dom domino effect metaphor is? It's either page six or page, or page seven, forgive me. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking at the page right here. Uh, basically, this was something that I kind of saw this theory written down on paper and I thought, well, it's kind of like a domino. When you knock down one domino, the next one, and then the next one goes, and then the next one goes, and then the next one goes. And what essentially it explains is that uh, a lot of what uh, happens on the outside in terms of consequences or outcomes in your sport often comes from what's uh, happening inside of you. So you have an emotion or a thought, uh, sorry, an emotion or a feeling and that emotional feeling uh, turns into a thought. So for me, I see it as coming from the heart, the emotion and the feeling, going to the brain, which is now your thought. And a lot of what happens with your thoughts ends up showing as physical behaviors. 
So we've gone from the feelings in our heart, now we're thinking those in our brain, now they're showing as behaviors in an outward way, and then finally you get that consequence. So if you take that back in reverse, how you could see it is your outcomes of your sport could be down to the behaviors that you are, uh, you know, acting, which are usually down to the thoughts in your brains, which are usually down to your emotions and feelings. And to me, that's uh, the bread and butter of emotional intelligence. If you are able to uh, regulate and manage the feeling part, the heart part, then that's where we will be able to control our brain, our thoughts a little bit better, control our behaviors a little bit better, and therefore have a little bit more um, rein on what happens with outcome. That's really cool. And you can see even just from what Omar barely mentioned, uh, body language and giving up three goals, how much of a difference that can make from where we, I mean, just from that initial breakdown. So how can we define emotional intelligence and then what can it do for me as a coach, whether it's college level, high school club, up to the, the professional level? Absolutely. So um, there's many definitions to emotional intelligence. I'm not going to say one of them is right. In essence, they all explain the same thing. They're just using different wording. But how I would explain emotional intelligence is that it's your ability to assess your own emotions and those of others and use that assessment to be able to uh, kind of regulate and manage uh, your emotions and the, and kind of uh, regulate the emotions of others as well. And when you look at uh, emotional intelligence and the different models that come from different researchers, the one I use in the book is the model of uh Crucial competence, which is from uh, a researcher named Daniel Goleman. He uh, has created a book called What is Emotional Intelligence? And uh, it's a very popular book in the world of EI. And basically, he breaks his model of crucial competence down into four categories. So he says that emotional intelligence is a result of four things. First of all is self-awareness. The second one is self-management. The third one is social awareness. And the last one is relationship management. So if we go to the first one, self-awareness, this is your ability to understand your own emotions and they how they impact you and other people around you. So that's self-awareness. The next one is self-management. So now we're understanding those emotions and how they affect us and others around us. But now we're able to manage those, regulate those, and understand those a little bit better in, in a general sense. Then you move on to the other side of the scope, which is social awareness. And this is the ability to understand the emotions of other people and how their emotions affect you and themselves as well. And then your last one is relationship management. And this is your ability to use your own skills, your own EI skills to kind of take those emotions of other people, use them to your um, advantage or to help them out in other ways. And relationship management also talks a little bit about, um, you know, uh, trying to make groups cohesive, working with groups and stuff like that. So it's really basically just the ability to use emotions and utilize them as well, understand emotions and utilize them. Um, in terms of how the, uh, the idea of emotional intelligence can help you as a coach. I personally think that emotional intelligence can help any single person, any professional that works with another person. If you work with someone else, 
in your professional field, in your personal field, whatever it is, you can use emotional intelligence because it's all about your emotions, other emotions, and how to um, kind of make those connect. Um, you can use it for yourself and your own general performance, which is something that I believe is really important in athletics because especially if you're in an individual sport, uh, that's something that's really important, being able to regulate and manage your own emotions. Uh, but in the term of uh, social awareness and, and relationship management, that's where we're talking about working with other people. And as a coach, you, of course, work with a plethora of other people. You work with your fellow coaches. You work with your support staff. You work with your athletes, uh, recruits, depending on the level of um, athletics you're in. Uh, so it can really utilize your uh, performance as a coach to be able to have these things. And I also believe it's helpful because if you're able to show emotional intelligence yourself, you are most likely going to be role modeling that to your athletes as well. So by showing EI yourself, you are uh, enhancing your uh, the EI in your athletes as well. You know, it's so funny you say that about how it's applicable to any situation where you're dealing with another human being. So this goes beyond sports. And I'm, I'm currently doing a coaching, uh, uh, executive coaching as, as my second master's degree. And I'm the only sports person on that, on that course. It's people in Bank of America or IT or whatever. And there is so much overlap between what they do and what I do. It's just about managing people, being able to inspire them, empower them, um, give recognition. And now jumping on to recognition, more specifically, talking about praise. Um, why should, as a coach, be, um, how do I put this? Why should I take into account how often do I praise my players and what do I praise them for? Absolutely. So, um, first of all, in terms of Daniel Goleman's model, because uh, sometimes it's hard to think about how specific things relate to emotional intelligence. But Daniel Goleman's model has a ton of different subcategories. And those subcategories are uh, essentially the skills that relate to emotional intelligence. So in relationship management, one of the subcategories is developing others. So being able to enhance other people's performance or other people's emotions. And by praising someone, you are enhancing them or developing them in a specific way. And usually that's to do with confidence, competence, character, stuff like that. And so uh, in terms of praise, you definitely want to, um, you know, think about it a lot more than just, you know, your simple good jobs or your simple, you know, you did it, you did really great in that set or that training or whatever it is. So, um, sorry, Omar, what was your specific question? I have to make sure I answer it correctly. Oh yeah. I, th I think you, you covered a lot of it. It's just like digging into that Goldman's, uh, uh template on, on, uh, that framework that, that you're using and just focusing specifically about praise and possibly linked with self-awareness because I want to be self-aware about what I'm praising, how many times I'm praising it and, and what, what exactly am I praising? Am I praising effort versus skill? You know, talk us, talk us through that and how that can help us as coaches. Absolutely. So with, um, emotionally intelligent praise, there's a few things that you want to remember, especially if you are working with a team. So a lot of the time there's coaches that work with just one individual athlete, but there's a lot of the times where coaches are working with 20 or 30 or 40 athletes, depending on your sport, depending on your level. Um, 
But you definitely want to make sure that the praise is specific, first of all. So, you know, you hear a lot of coaches that say, good job, or give them a pat on the back, or uh, say, you know, that was great. But really, what is that athlete going to get from uh, that level of praise? They're going to know that they did good, but what part of what I just did was good, you know? So if you could be more specific and say, you know, uh, I really liked, um, I'm a swimmer. I come from a swimming background, so I always revert to that kind of mindset. But I can say, you know, I really liked how you, uh, kick straight out of your turn. So a lot of people turn, drift, and then kick. And ideally, you want to kick straight off of your turns. Uh, so if, if you're able to be specific, that specific, that's going to more likely than not replicate that behavior. If you say that was good, but something so general was good, and then they don't replicate it the next time, that's because they had no idea that you wanted that specific part to be replicated. So um, it's really um, more important to be specific with praise rather than, you know, just the general outcome uh, was good or the general um, skill was successful. So definitely want to have um, specific praise. Uh, it's really important as well uh, to make sure that you praise when it's sincere. So all the time, you know, athletes know you really, really well. They know when you're lying. They know when you're uh, kind of, you know, pushing something that isn't quite true to them. So a lot of the time, if they, if you tell them good job and they understand that you don't mean it, you're going to lose a little bit res of respect from them and also... Uh, you're probably gonna, uh, your, your future real praise is probably gonna come off less accepted. So you definitely wanna make sure that, uh, when you're saying something, you really mean it because it often shows in the tone of your voice and your body language. Um, and you know, if, if, if something wasn't great, this is where, uh, specificity comes off again. So say, for example, my swimmer had a bad race, but there was elements that were good. And I truly believe that those elements were good. When they come out and I'm specific with that praise, it is sincere because I know those parts of it were good. Yes, I can tell the athlete that the performance as a whole was subpar or it wasn't ideal or it's something that we want to work on. But then if we go back to specificity again, we are able to, uh, you know, be sincere with our praise as well. And then the last thing I would really say about uh, praise there as well is that you really want to praise effort and skill technique over your performance as a whole. So uh, like I said, specific, really important, and this kind of ties in with that as well. But if someone comes off of the pitch or the field or the tennis court or the pool and you say, good job, that was a really good race, uh, you are setting a very high bar for them and something that would likely overwhelm them or end up causing some kind of performance anxiety based on the personality of, of the athlete. Uh, so it's really important to, uh, you know, try and focus on specific skills, specific things. And also, especially at practice, praise behavior. Because if you're praising people that have a good work ethic, if you're praising people that are really, really trying hard in practice or are being a great teammate, you're definitely going to be able to see those efforts and behaviors be replicated. And often that's what coaches want. They want good work ethic and they want good teammates and they want good people that want to be there every day at 5 a.m. in the morning. So if you're praising that, you're going to get that behavior coming back every practice, and it's going to make your whole team dynamic a more pleasurable place to be. That's awesome. So we're looking at specific, 
sincere, looking at their behaviors, their effort, their technique, as opposed to like, nice goal, dude. Like, that was amazing because they're not necessarily guaranteed to get that a lot. Absolutely. Uh, so from my perspective, just one more quick thought on that. As a soccer coach, we have 20 plus guys. I don't know how many you're working with on the swim team at a time. I find it difficult to get that specific feedback to every single guy on the team, every single session or drill or a game or a half or whatever it might be. Do you have any just like real specific strategies or tactics? Like you have your notepad right next to you to write down everything or, or how do you, how are you intentional about making sure you're able to get those specific details, especially when it comes to, you know, everything happening at once? Absolutely. So yeah, I, I would definitely agree. Uh, you know, it's easy to say, oh, we should do this and we should do that as coaches. But in all honesty, we're not superhumans. We can't do everything at once. So often you have to uh, focus on one specific thing that you want to work on as a coach in assist in uh, addition to, you know, your your core coaching abilities that day. Uh, and so like it's almost impossible to be giving verbal feedback, watching technique, writing things down. Uh, and stuff like that. And, and one thing that I found, um, I've spoken to a couple of coaches who said this has worked for them, uh, is that you focus on one, two, maybe three players every practice. And it wouldn't be a sense of that you're favoring these players or that you, uh, you know, you're going to ignore everyone else. Definitely not saying to ignore everyone else. But if there's a couple of swimmers that you really, oh, sorry, a couple of athletes that you really think that they should, uh, uh, you know, be watched that day and should really get some good feedback that day. Focus on those, um, you know, take mental note of everything that they're doing and things that you think that they can pr improve on. And if you don't have time to interject in a game or interject in practice and give them that specific feedback then and there, that's something that you could do after practice, bring them in the, in the office to watch some film or to go through your observations of that practice with them. Um, and if it's something that's more needed right there and then they need to make those quick changes straight away, then yeah, that's something you can do. And, and then you don't have to worry about 20, 30 athletes at the same time. Uh, you're kind of um, minimizing that hassle for you. Awesome. One of the things that, that we did was just kind of division of labor a little bit where one coach is looking at our defenders one in the midfield, one in the attackers. So it was, it was a little more manageable that way. Uh, just when we were working at the college level and stuff. No, I like that. That's uh, that's a great uh, great way to do it, especially if you have several coaches. Depending on the level that you're working at, you know, sometimes there's one coach to 40, 50 athletes. So it, it's mm -hmm. it's tough depending on your situation. Um, and that's something that, that is very helpful if you have several hands on deck. Um, but yeah, would definitely emphasize quality feedback over, um, or quality praise over, um, you know, quantity for everybody, I guess. Yeah. And in my experience, when you do get that feedback to them, it, they just light up, like they're so excited. Everybody is craving that type of feedback and specificity on how they can get better, how they can contribute, how they can, you know, get more playing time, whatever it might be. 
So anything you can do to try and do that is huge in, from just what I've experienced. Absolutely. I remember a situation where I had a goalkeeper who, a 15-year-old, who was trying to make a top corner save, like a really athletic save across the goal, maybe three, covering three, four yards with just one step. And she tried to catch it and failed. And the ball just went in the goal. And I just went up to her and I said, I love that you tried to catch it. That's you going out of your comfort zone. You tried to do something that you've never done before. And that's bravery to me. Like that's, that's the attitude that I want to see, mm -hmm. right? The road to success is paved with failure. You're going to concede many goals and training and in games, but it's about how you, how you handle that. Yeah. Um, and I'm really glad we covered that. This is the, so what we're going to do now, we're going to go through the last question of chapter one. Okay. Uh, because I want to get into the the following chapters, and I'm really paranoid about missing missing any of this content. <laughs> of course, no, uh, no. Yeah. So I guess my last question for this chapter is: Would you please go through the toolbox for developing others, which is on page 14, I believe? Toolbox for developing others, of course. Uh, so obviously, we're talking about relationship management, being able to develop other people, their confidence, their character, their um, their you know. Uh, self, self confidence as a whole, I guess. Uh, first of all, we talked about words of encouragement. So we did say, you know, steer away from general praise and general feedback, but it's always really important to give words of encouragement. Yes, we want those specific as specific as possible, um, but recognizing someone's success on a personal level. Uh, so in here, we give the example of a soccer coach that notices one of his lower ranked players has been improving significantly in the past few weeks. Um, and after practice one day, he pulls the player over to the side and asks him what he believes has sparked the change. Says the player informs him that he's been practicing with his older brothers in his free time. The coach is impressed at his athlete's dedication and work ethic and praises him by saying, you're a great example to others, I'm proud of you, and you should be proud of yourself. And for a lot of co coaches, especially coaches that are very orientated around results and performance and what's actually going on on the field, um, or the pool, or the court, or wherever you are, uh, a lot of the time, those simple sentences that could change that athlete's day are forgotten, or they're put to the bottom of their list. But as you guys have already said, words of encouragement or feedback, especially good feedback, is really what drives an athlete to come back the next day. So uh, words of encouragement are very, uh, very important. And then the next one we talk about in uh, the uh, toolbox is recognition in front of others. So this is a really great, great way to replicate behavior of an athlete that you uh, would like their behavior to be replicated. So, for example, if you get the team down in a huddle at the end of practice and you highlight a few things that you saw from some specific athletes, and again, we want to uh, highlight behavior, we want to highlight work ethic, we want to highlight specific skills, um, you definitely want to recognize those in front of other people because those other athletes then see that that's what makes the coach happy and that's what the coach likes. And in all honesty, a lot, a lot of athletes just want to please their coach. So they're likely going to come back and do the same thing the next day. It's almost like a contagion of, um, you know, good behavior or, or good skill. Um, and then we talk about the power of touch as well. And there's actually been uh, uh, research done behind this, uh, real statistical research, where they say uh, that 
physically touching an athlete, and I'll put a disclaimer, you know, appropriate touch, physically, uh, physical appropriate touch with an athlete is actually uh, correlated with improved athlete performance. So what they did is they did a uh, study at UC Berkeley or a team from UC Berkeley did this study where they looked into um, Major League Baseball or uh, sorry, Major League Basketball, or it could have been actually um, college basketball. I'm kind of uh, blanking on that one. Uh, but they uh, counted how many physical touches between the athletes and other athletes and the athletes and the coaches. And they found that the more physical touches between teams, the, uh, the better statistical outcome they actually had of their performance. So they were actually performing better the more physical touch they had. And honestly, it's just literally a biological thing. Uh, we know that it's important for newborn babies to be held against uh, human skin and uh, sort of uh, things like that. It's just a comforting feeling to be touched by another person. So uh, often when that's done in a praise sense or a uh, good job sense or something like that, it's often seen as a, co a correlation or a co connection with uh, improved performance. Yeah, I, I think I mentioned this to you, Esme, when we were talking prior to the, re the recording of the show, but they did a study on Maurizio Pochettino, who uh, was the coach of Tottenham Hotspur, took over in the summer and they measured the, the amount of distance covered of that same team with the same players, no transfers in or out. And in the space of one year, the team on average covered an extra 1.7 miles per game per player. And they attributed that in his biography to the fact that every training session, he would hug the players, he would kiss them, he would just put his arm around them. And he's from Argentina, you know, so that culture over there is very similar to the Middle East, you know, very touchy, very, um, what's the word, paternal? Is that is that the right word? So he was sort of a father figure rather than just a, a sports coach. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. And that, that comes back to the sincerity, the sincereness of um, a coach you know if you if you are showing that you mean it and you're showing your genuine self it often has a very big impact on your athletes yeah that's awesome and if you're if you're trying to do something that's not you it's pretty easy to pick up on especially from the athlete perspective like trying to force something or do anything that i don't know is not like well, sincere, really, like you're not living it out. You're just kind of going through motions. It's really easy. Like kids or any athletes, any age have a really sensitive radar for that. I would totally agree there. People can read other people. We think they can't, but they're very good at it. And I'm sure that they'll call you out on it. Hopefully, Omar, okay. if you do it, they'll call you out. So we are heading into chapter two. Trying to keep an eye on the time. We don't want to take your entire night as me, but we'll get as much as we can. And I think you're doing awesome. And I'm really excited. Just all the all the details and everything you're able to include. I'm learning a ton and, and really enjoying it. So chapter two, looking at athlete setbacks and kind of starting out, there was a little bit of a self-evaluation on there after a setback, whether it's a loss or knocked out of playoffs or whatever it might be even just a bad session or something checking yourself as a coach emotionally you know how did you feel while it was happening in the team meeting on the way home or the next day at the field 
or in preparation leading up to the next game. And I thought that was really interesting. I feel like not, I don't, I'm not saying like I'm super resilient, but I've just had times where I'm so excited, even, even in a loss, like I see our team possessing the ball well, building out of the back, whatever it might be, working together, hustling, playing their heart out, even if it's like a 3-0 game and they, they played through the end of the game. They did not give up. They didn't hang their heads. Even in a loss, I'm like, I'm pretty excited just for what that means for the future. And so I've kind of felt weird at times where we're at the end of a loss and my players are down, you know, it's frustrating. And I always want to give them time, you know, 24, 48 hours to kind of just absorb that. And then we look forward, whatever it might be. Um, but just have found it interesting and, and try to be sensitive to that where I'm looking so far forward, I might tend to miss like being there for them as they're kind of down and sitting in it. Not that I'm going to be like, yeah, you guys, that really sucked, you know, but it it can be like a yeah this is a this is a crappy feeling we we hate this we hate taking the loss whatever it might be but how let's let's find the positives in it and kind of coming alongside them that way so that's something i've tried to develop a little bit is a little bit more sensitivity to that and being able being able to connect with them on like yeah we had a bad night in this area but look at the positive things that are happening let's not dwell at dwell on that let's take responsibility where we can it's my job as a coach to prepare you guys for these things and we're gonna we're gonna jump on it tomorrow so kind of as a coach how do you how can we tell or judge or test our resiliency i like that self-awareness little exercise in there and then along that line do you, do you mind if i just jump in oh yeah sure um so we kind of were struggling to frame this question as me Okay. Because uh, we, we, you and I discussed it privately, but we're talking about athlete setbacks. Mm -hmm. And we were saying, listen, if you want your athlete to be resilient, you as a coach also have to be resilient. Right. You, you can't lose your temper when you lose a game. You can't show a bad example because then your players are, are going to you know, follow that behavior. So, you know, if you, if we want the players to deal with setbacks better, we as coaches have to deal with setbacks as well. You know, we have to be the same person, whether we're winning or losing. Um, so, so our question is before we can ask how we can make our players resilient, how do I know if I'm a resilient coach? You know, what are the telltale, the telltale signs for you? That's a, a very good question. And in, how I see it, it's a lot to do with timeline. So in the beginning of this chapter, in the guidebook, we talk about um, emotional self-awareness when it comes to setbacks. So there's a little activity in the book that says, okay, you're going to journal your feelings after a game, a match, a championship, whatever it is. You're going to document your feelings over the next week or up until, even up until your next game or match or whatever it is. So uh, you're, set, you're told to put your feelings uh, immediately after the performance, the next morning, or sorry, the bus ride home or however you get home, the next morning, end of the next week, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what you'll find is resilient people will maybe have those one or two first um, 
sections filled out with negative feelings. But after that, that's when those feelings start to become positive. Really super resilient people have positive uh, comments right at the very beginning after straight after a loss. And Tyler, you talked about that right there, you know, instantly after a game where you lose, you're still excited because you've seen good things. And that's what a super resilient coach is. As you go down the line, if you're still filling out, if you're still filling out uh, uh, your, uh, your sections with negative feelings and you've gotten to the bottom of the list where it's two weeks later and you're still feeling so frustrated about this one loss you had, that's when you know that you're not resilient. So first and foremost, it's important to you know gain that self-awareness because like you said, how do I know if I'm even resilient or not? How is, is there a way to measure it? And like we said, psychology and emotions, it's really hard to measure things. There's no way to really put numbers into that other than uh, your own um, self-made numbers. Um, so a lot of the time it's uh, qualitative and observational of yourself. Uh, so kind of just, you know, documenting that and seeing that you uh, are feeling this written down on paper so it's easy to see rather than you being like oh no I feel fine when really you're not uh, so first of all really important to uh, take a look at uh, your emotions in in that kind of light yeah and just for the sake of the listeners just listening uh, we it's during the setback in your team meeting during the ride home the next day on the field and in the lead up to the next game that following weekend so those are the five templates that we're going to put up there for, for everyone to see that are uh, that really uh, help the reflection part uh, for the players. So we've gone past, okay, how do I become a resilient coach? Now the next step for us, for Tyler and myself, is, okay, how do I transmit that to the team? How do I coach resilience? How do I coach grit? Absolutely. And this usually depends on uh, the... Uh, level, uh, the expertise of your athletes, and usually their age as well. So I would always say the best way to um, teach resilience to younger athletes is to demonstrate it yourself. As uh, younger kids, you know, club level athletes, you know, your range from 8 to 14, 15, it's hard to sit them down and talk about the theory of resilience or um, you know, this is how we become resilient. It would be something that would just go straight over their head. So this is more where you just have to show resilience and hope that they kind of catch on to it. And like we said, a lot of things in team dynamics are contagious. As soon as one person starts doing it, someone else does it, and it kind of spreads like wildfire. And before you know, you've got a whole team that is uh, very resilient. However, as you go on into that older age range, especially... Uh, at college level, this is where it becomes super cool because you can actually sit down and have a conversation about it. You can pull an athlete into your office and do that exercise with them, for example. Or on the bus ride home, you could print out a copy of the uh, activity we have in the guidebook and say, we're going to fill this out over the next couple of weeks and uh, see how you're feeling. So not only they can get a reflection of their own emotions and their own resilience, but they can also uh, work on it from then on. Uh, so there's there's many other um, strategies and tactics you can use to actually build resilience, you know, uh, positive, um, positive affirmations and things like that definitely help. Positivity in general definitely helps. And there's a plethora of uh, research behind that. Uh, but to me, the most important thing is becoming self-aware of 
your resilience, whether it's there or not. And Esme, I don't know if if you've go through this struggle, um, but there seems to be some myth, some preconceived notion of people that that people uh, have of resilience. They seem to think that resilience, being resilient, means you are a robot and nothing touches you. But you know, I I stole something from you actually when I was speaking with the players a couple of days ago. Resilience isn't doesn't mean that you don't feel self doubt. It doesn't mean that you're never on low self-esteem and it doesn't mean that you never lose games. You know, it's, it's when you feel those three things or when these three things happen to you, it's knowing how to bounce back quickly and having a framework to tell yourself it's okay. Everyone makes mistakes. How can I do better next time? Absolutely. Yeah, I would definitely say that's one thing I kind of preface in the guidebook. There's, there's a couple of ways to look at emotional intelligence. The first way that I, I don't really follow is that um, you can actually change your emotions. You can change your core feelings, right? And and that takes a lot of work. That is a lot of effort. That takes some counseling or some real training, right? And uh, that's that's really great if you are able to do that. However, the other way to look at it, the other avenue you could say is, okay, your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, those are natural. Those are part of being a human being. It's how we manage these emotions that is the most important thing. So uh, really important to be self-aware, to work at that self-management um, area. Yeah. If if you're 80 minutes into a competition or whatever, it'd be extremely difficult to have like away from your default feelings, thoughts, and emotions like You'd have to have some pretty uh, legit training or whatever to, because you're going to default to what you know. And I think managing your behaviors in light of that and recognizing those thoughts, feelings, emotions for what they are is huge and much more realistic when you're, I mean, you've been running around for 80 minutes and you're drained. And that I think it's, it's a really, really nice way to actually do something actionable with that. Of course. So, chapter three, athlete injuries. I could probably fill several pop podcast episodes with demonstrations and examples of my lack of empathy, but we will we will not go into those details right now. Um, that is for another time. However, that's that's kind of. So I'm I'm doing a lot of the the questions here on this empathy side. Okay. So please teach me all the things because, I mean, we're starting basically at zero on, on my end. But alrighty, it'll I'm I'm excited. So you do realize that makes you sound like a serial killer, right? When you say I mean, that you have no empathy, that's no. a fair assessment. <laughs> She's the expert. Not me, but. To the layman, it's it's concerning. I'm, I'm just I'm just laying it out there for where we're at and trying to be trying to be real because man, it's bad. We have too many stories of that, so I don't I don't want to take up too much more. But maybe that'll be a separate episode on its own. A whole podcast about yeah empathy. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So how, just kind of some different scenarios, like how do I as a coach show empathy to a player, whether they're underperforming or injured? Is it pretty similar between the two or is it kind of 
a different approach depending on, you know, they're active and still part of the team, but not doing as well personally versus injured where they have a lot of doubts and they're kind of isolated or can be isolated and things like that. I would say it's definitely, they're definitely tied to each other. There's going to be some overlap there with one, how, uh, what the athlete is going through and two, how that affects their performance. Uh, but there is some differences as well. And it really depends, um, on how serious the injury is, how it's impacting the athlete. And there's a theory about athletic identity, which we talk about in the book. There's some athletes that are super high in athlete identity. So they consider themselves an athlete. They are primarily an athlete, and that's really, really important to them. And on the other hand, there's athletes that are low in athletic identity, and athletics is a part of their life, and they enjoy doing it, but they have other hobbies outside, or they don't consider them a soccer player or a tennis player. Uh, You know, they're just someone that plays tennis. So it really depends on the person. I was someone who was high in athletic identity. It was a huge part of my life and a, a huge part of my being. Uh, and that I had teammates that were just as able, if not, uh, you know, uh, performing at higher levels than I was that had a lower athletic identity to me. And what you find is those people that are high in athletic identity often struggle with injuries a lot more than someone that's low in athletic identity does, just because they see this as something that could really impact a huge part of their life. If their sport is a huge part of their life and there's something that is risking that, then that's going to be where you start to see a little bit more turmoil, a little bit more struggle. Um, And I won't say that that's something that you know, that's, those are the people that coaches need to put extra emphasis on, you know, we need to put on emphasis on everyone that has an injury. But those are the people you got to try kind of be aware of socially aware of when uh, those injuries come up. So we have to remember that they're going through a lot. We talk about in the emotional intelligence guidebook, things that athletes go through when uh, they are injured. And as a coach, you often just see that they are out of the pool or they're off the field or they're on the bench, you know, that's all you see. And you see them um, as just no performance. But what you forget is everything that's going on inside the thoughts that are going on in their mind in relation to this. So there's a lot of research um, behind this. And there's a uh, there's one piece of research uh, by Dr. Pete Temple. And it says the athletes are uh, often feel eight things when they're going through a uh, struggle or a a athletic injury. And the first one is loss of identity, like they're no longer the athlete that they were. Uh, They feel like they've lost a role. So they were part of a team and now they are not. So they feel a little bit uh, useless in a sense. They lose their self-esteem. They lose a healthy coping coping mechanism. So for a lot of people, their sport is a way to cope with other things, whether it's stress of school, whether it's stress of family, uh, being able to um, perform or practice or train throughout the week is a coping mechanism for them. A lot of athletes also uh, lose a sense of social connectedness. So a lot, a lot of athletes, that's what they spend 20 to 30 hours a week doing. And their circle of friends in their sport is often their main source of social connectedness. And they lose that as well. They also lose their sense of structure. We know that uh, sports provide a very solid routine for athletes. And when that's taken away, especially if your coaches aren't holding you accountable to be at practice uh, regardless anyway, you often lose that sense of structure as well. 
the research also shows that athletes lose confidence during athletic injuries and they lose uh, that sense of goal orientedness. So usually, you know, your whole season is based around goals that you have at the beginning of that season. And when an injury uh, kind of disrupts that, you know, what are you following? What are you working towards? And that's a struggle for an athlete as well. So when we are um, when we are looking at an athlete and we are seeing an injured athlete, yes, they're broken on the outside, but there is so many things they are going on that are going on in the inside as well. Uh, so empathy is simply about first of all realizing that, understanding that, and then kind of showing that you care about that. And there's many ways that you can show empathy. Um, first of all, you know, just sitting them down and asking them how their day was or asking them how their progress is going uh, with their athletic trainer or their rehab. Uh, just showing that you are invested in their recovery process, first of all, is a great way to show empathy. Um, maybe, you know, connecting with their parents if it's a younger athlete or, you know, keeping in contact with your athletic trainer if you have a college level athlete. Um, just showing that you are invested in the process, first of all. I think that's so insightful on their identity portion, whether it's they're having issues with injury or performance, because that's going to be such a huge factor. And one kid's going to be like, oh, yeah, I'll be fine soon. you know. And the other kid's going to be like, it's terrible. I can't do anything. Oh, man. And as a coach, it's so easy our only interaction with them is at the field or whatever it might be, especially at lower levels. So it's like you see, like you, you see this player on your team. It's easy to just be like, oh yeah, he's out. You know, he's going to be on the bench and that's fine. Like he'll be back soon or, and just miss the person side of that. And it's like, no, this isn't just your midfielder or your forward or whatever it might be. Like it's a human being. This is a part of his life and or her life. And, it's they they're missing a big chunk of it or it might not even be such a big deal because they're they're kind of just there to have fun or or just more well-rounded in in different ways uh, that's i really like that on the identity part for sure yeah and i will give a disclaimer here as well because there is a little bit of controversy sometimes with athletic injuries and i'm not saying that it doesn't exist but there is always the fakers you get those athletes that want to get out of practice and don't want to train. And honestly, that was something I didn't approach in the guidebook because it is so complex and there's a whole bunch of different reasons why athletes do that. Um, maybe it, it's a story for another book, I guess. But um, yeah, you do get those athletes and showing empathy towards them is a struggle for coaches because... You know, I've got, I want to spend my time giving empathy and praise to the athletes that are actually really invested in their time here. Um, why should I be showing empathy to an athlete that isn't giving me, um, you know, their respect at the same time? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's scholarship dynamics and all that. And yeah, that there's a ton that can go into that. It's Absolutely. part of the guidebook touched on kind of feeling and you mentioned it briefly like you're no longer part of the team you don't have a role and that that feeling of belonging and being in and everything like that it can change so quickly and just something that I've experienced I wanted to share a tiny bit like I remember training playing in college and like some of the guys who had graduated previously would come to training every now and then and I wouldn't think anything of it 
at training. It was great to have him. It was fun playing and things like that. And uh, I just remember it was no big deal to me on the team. And then after I graduated, I went back for a session or something. And it just felt so weird, like, because you're not there in the day to day. You don't know the vibes and culture. Like, it just it just was so different. I was like, what in the world? What happened? But it's a totally different team at that point. And just how quick that can change, like being in or being out and you're not able to train with them. You're not in the daily schedule. You're not in the meetings can be such a, a big switch. And I definitely have the same type of athlete identity where I'm wrapped. I was totally wrapped up in that. And I was like, I don't have soccer. What in the world? What am I supposed to do? You know, so it's just crazy how fast that can change. My last question on chapter three is just thinking from your experience and perspective, have you ever experienced this kind of empathy done well? Like, does anything stand out in your mind as an athlete growing up or college, wherever it might be? Have you ever experienced that done well? And how, how did that go for you? So um, in the guidebook, we talk about some ways that you can stay, uh, you can show empathy and kind of keep your athlete you know, pretty composed while they're going through injuries. And it's uh, on page 30 and it talks about the coach and mentor. So it talks about staying connected with your athlete during the recovery phase, providing injured athletes with an alternative role on the team, have them practice if they can, trust those responsible for their recovery. So those are four really important things that you could do if your athlete is injured that are very emotionally intelligent. And I would honestly say that uh, I haven't, seen from either myself or coaches that I've been connected with, I don't think I've ever seen all four, either because they're not appropriate for the team or the situation, or because, you know, the coach, you know, really emphasizes one and, you know, kind of lacks on the other three. Uh, but I would say that I have seen certain elements of that be done really well um, by themselves. So I know that when I was in college, um, we were as injured athletes if we were ever injured whether it be a short-term injury or a long-term injury we were always held accountable to show up to practice no matter what the only exceptions to that were if you were if you had a concussion or if you had something where you actually really needed to rest but you know if you had sprained your ankle or you had ligament damage or something you were still expected to show up to practice now you weren't doing what everyone else was doing but you were still staying connected you were still being held accountable as an athlete your teammates respected you because you were showing up when they were showing up and it was something that definitely made an impact and became a team norm and it definitely paid off i think when when other athletes got injured and felt like they were losing their their space on the team or losing their connection with the team it was definitely a way to keep them wrapped up in everything that was going on awesome you want to keep going yeah. you sure we have enough time if Esme doesn't mind. We can run through chapter four for sure. We could go through team dynamics. Okay, awesome. so uh, my question here, my first question whenever I'm entering any level, whether it's high school, club, college, is what can coaches do to, co to create a stronger team dynamic? And oh. I ask because I know swimming and basketball and soccer, any team sport, there's going to be a bit of overlap. So I just wanted to see what the commonalities are between all the sports and what that step-by-step -step process looks like. Absolutely. So um, when you think of teams that have a really good uh, dynamic, you often think of teams 
that are very um, ingrained in tradition and are very proud to be part of, you know, what what they're representing. Uh, so as a coach, you really want to establish ways for, you know, even your new team to be, uh, uh, you know, recognizing traditions and being proud of what they are from and what they are representing. So uh, first of all, there's a couple of things in the guidebook we mentioned. One of them is to uh, create proximity. So we want all of our team to be together as much as possible. Uh, sometimes it's important to, you know, section off and have this group working on this, you know, your goalkeepers working on this and your defenders working on this and whatnot. But wherever you can, you want your whole team to be joining as a whole and working together because that's where you create better bonds and everybody gets to know everyone a little bit more. I, uh, actually, uh, went through a unique experience as a college swimmer in college athletics. It's not swimming, it's swimming and diving. And as much as those are two uh, aquatic sports, they're very, very different sports. And our coaches had the task of trying to mold us swimmers and the divers as one team, even though we had different practice times because of the different weather temperatures. Uh, we had different parts of the pool that we used. And uh, that was something that was definitely a challenge when I was an athlete and when I was a coach. But one thing that they always did was, you know, our team meetings were always together. They'd always uh, try and talk about divers to the swimmers and swimmers to the divers. They made the swimmers and divers live together in the dorms. Uh, just just a way, any way that you can get them close to each other to create a strong team dynamic. Now, you've got to have a lot of other things in place so that that team dynamic actually works. But if your team dynamic is able to work, the closer we are, the more likely it's going gonna, it's gonna to be successful. One of the other things we talk about is creating distinctiveness. So this is something that sets you apart from everyone else in your own unique way. And this doesn't have to be about performance or outcome or anything like that. It can be as simple as unique team uh, outfits. So you think about um, like, uh, I'm trying to think of like a good example. Um, the Yankees wear pinstripe um you know, pinstripe uniforms and that they're the only people in the league that, that do something like that. So uh, it just creates that distinctiveness. Uh, I can think of swimming. The conference that I swam for, we swam with uh, Wyoming and the, the girls on the team would wear these terribly colored yellow and brown overalls on their last day of conference, our conference championships. But it was fun and it makes you remember them. And that kind of gives them something to be proud of and something that makes them their own. And that kind of increases or improves team dynamic there as well. And then finally, uh, I'll mention about um, assisting role development. So a big part of team dynamic is having an organizational structure to your team. So everybody has a different role and the coaches should be developing those roles no matter what they are. So I talked to Omar about this when we discussed this a few weeks ago. But, um, you know, you want your captains. Those are vital people to your program. My uh, my strong recommendation would be to put your captains through uh, trainings and webinars and uh, kind of programs that develop their leadership because strong leadership will have a huge domino effect on your team. So not only do you want to make sure you're selecting appropriate captains, you want to make sure that they are continuously learning as well. 
but not only do we have those leadership roles, there is many other roles in the team. So you have social roles. Those are the people that kind of gel everyone together, make sure everybody's happy and, uh, you know, pleasant at practice. Uh, they're the ones that usually organize the parties at the end of the week and, and whatnot and make sure that everybody is kind of connecting and, you know, creating that proximity again. You also have the work ethic role. So you have those athletes, they may or may not be uh, high performers on your team, but they are constantly, they are your go-to for showing that someone can work hard. They work hard every practice, they put in the grind, they have the hustle, and those are usually the people that are the good role models to the rest of the team. You know, this person is working hard today, you should be working hard today too. Um, and then you have the quiet ones. These are usually the ones that, you know, don't usually um, speak up or, you know, make a big impact on the team. But maybe they're the people that someone can go to to confide in in a situation. Um, and a lot of the time, what I would say is when those shy ones or those quiet ones do speak up, they're listened to because they don't often speak. So if they're talking, they're probably saying something important. And that um, contributes to team dynamics as well. I'm I'm so intentional about that when the uh, as coaches when we talk to the players I, I talk to the players after practice maybe once every ten days <laughs> that's my it's a ten day window I don't say anything Omar do you have anything to say nope nope <laughs> and then on the tenth day I'm like well don't ask and then all that. the players don't are like wait he speaks he speaks he said something it must be important right I had a a co-worker that I used to work with and uh, he uh, is um, a little older. He's got a lot of wisdom to do with our sport. He knows his stuff. At practice, he doesn't say much. He's watching. You can see that he's just watching all the time and he's taking everything in. And he doesn't often say things, but when he does, every single swimmer looks at him and takes what he is saying seriously because he um, he is you know, full of that wisdom and you know he's going to say the right thing. And then on the other hand, you've got those pe those coaches that just do not stop talking. And then that be just becomes, you know, white tone noise in, in an athlete's ear because it's it, they're talking so often that you're like, oh, do I have to listen to this part? Because half of it's not informational to me. So, yeah, really important to, to do that too. And, you know, it gives the feedback more credibility when when you wait you know, that's something my, my instructor, Gareth Smith, who hopefully will come on as a guest on this podcast, Sign uh, up. he, he, you know, he, he gave me some really good feedback. Maybe four days ago, we had our individual meeting and I've learned so much under him. And he said to me, you know, your, your knowledge of the game, your, their tactics and everything is good, but you're a bit of a talker. You know, that's what he said to me because I want you to rewatch your video and tell me if you were a player and you're 16 years old and you're gassed, you're so tired, you're running nonstop, and then you give them six coaching points out of the six, how many are they really going to grasp? And I was like, if I'm lucky, maybe one, you know? So, yeah, yeah. And I love how the, the develop your leadership, it's at the end, and then it just becomes full circle. It's, it literally goes back to being the first thing. If you want to set an example to everybody and, and delegate and give mottos, like you said, and create fairness and similarities and commitment, attitudes and goals, it starts with the developing the, the leadership. So true. So true. Yeah, and you're developing your captains and leadership within the team and also your coaches. You got you to gotta do the same and make sure you're living that out too because... 
it's so easy for you to say all the things and be like, hey guys, we gotta do this, we gotta do this. And then the players are just like, well, you don't do that. Why, why should we do that? You know, they exactly. practice what you preach. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that won't fly anywhere. Yeah, so what's, perfect. what's the next step for you? Is there a PhD at the end of the road? Hopefully. Or another? Um, Definitely just trying to find, uh, obviously I've kind of found my niche, like what, um, I want to work in. Uh, there's just many different avenues you can take it down. And, uh, I think I need to take a little bit of reflection on, uh, exactly what I want to do. Like we said earlier in, in the guidebook, uh, anywhere where you work with other people or your own emotions are, um, effective of your performance or other people's performance, that's where you can use emotional intelligence. So it's disguised as many different names in many different, um, professional areas of the world in school systems you're looking at social emotional learning that is ei for kids in uh, uh business world you're looking at leadership development and stuff like that um so it's definitely something that you can use in many different ways i'm just kind of trying to develop a kind of portfolio of things that i have done to try and see what uh what areas i've kind of um had a lot of experience in and, and could go and, you know, go down that route or go down a business route, go down an athlete route. It could go many different ways. So just trying to get all the experience I can right now, which is why I appreciate you guys having me on and, um, you know, talking about what I've, what work I've done. So, uh, yeah, hopefully eventually some kind of PhD, uh, right now, just trying to get through the whole mess of the world and COVID and, um, yeah, so I'm I'm super passionate about education as well as athletics. Um, so I do see myself going into a um, educational route in terms of emotional intelligence, whether that be SEL or EI for teachers or something like that. So uh, something around around that area. Terrific. That is everything that we had for chapters one through four. So just thinking. Um, I was curious if there's anything on your radar that you're like, oh man, I wish, or maybe they need to hear this, or I wish they would have asked some more about this or anything like that, that you'd like to see from those first chapters, like something that could be really beneficial for us or other coaches, whatever it might be, anything that stands out. Uh, yeah, I'm just trying to have a look. I think you guys very thoroughly touched on everything. No, I think I think we're good. Honestly, you can't you can't talk about everything. It would take so so long. So, and honestly, like we just said, if you talk too much, it it becomes white noise. It becomes something that's not uh, going to quite fit in the brain. So, I think I think we're good at where we're at. Perfect. Awesome. Well, you know, as me, I really want to thank you, you know, for coming on and for what you're going to do for me next week uh, when we when we meet face to face with my players you know I'm really looking forward to that uh, not just for in terms of helping them but also helping me improve as a coach uh, if, if I have one good quality it's that I'm very aware of my own ignorance so uh, I'm really really looking forward to that so I want to thank you next time Hopefully, if we haven't made complete fools of ourselves, and as we <laughs> yes. come back on, uh, we will be talking about <laughs> goal setting, dealing with your emotions and the heat of competition, and coaching staff dynamics, which is my personal favorite. Um, 
So that's what we have covered. So a message to all coaches listening, especially the male coaches, get off Tinder, <laughs> get off Bumble. She's not texting you back. Read this guidebook. Read it. What, whatever level you coach, read it. It will help. At the very least, it'll give you a chance to self-reflect. Absolutely. You can't get more than a paragraph or two without a few paragraphs of notes on my end. Like, There's so much to unpack, and it's never going to be anything where you're like, oh, yeah, you know, I got that down. I can move forward. Put that one on the back burner. Like, It's <laughs> something that you're going to have to – you're actively practicing it every day and just working to improve on it every day. So thank you so much, Esme. It's been awesome. Thank you so really, much for having me. Really, really appreciate all the everything. I mean, I got I got some leveling up to do, so I appreciate your help and input in that and your research. Like, really appreciate that. Okay. Are you selling your guidebook? Are you or just giving it? Like, if someone wants it, they can reach out via email or anything like oh, yeah, that. Yeah, just reach out via email. Uh, the guidebook is free, and uh, I do offer consulting webinar. Uh, presentation services. Um, that's usually what ends up being beneficial for me out of giving it out for free is it usually comes with op other opportunities for me. Um, so yeah, just available for that kind of stuff, consulting, webinars, uh, presentations, stuff like that. Podcast. Podcast for sure. <laughs> so if you need to reach Esme, you can, we'll get her email here for you. We'll get her LinkedIn link here for you. So that you can ask her if you want to see the guidebook, she will give you that. It's awesome. She's also available for consulting, webinars, podcasts. She is amazing and has tons of stuff to share. So please do that. She would be okay. a huge help and impact on your organization, your team, or just you as a coach. Uh, I think you'd definitely benefit. That is everything for today. This has been another episode of screaming at kicking we are super excited for everything with esme that was really really amazing if you want to keep up with us we are at screaming at kicking on instagram and facebook and if you want to reach esme and get that guidebook which i would highly recommend you can email her the email address is esme Golick. E-S-M-E-G-U-L-L-I-C-K at mail.fresnostate.edu. And you want to send with the subject line, coaching with emotional intelligence. And that's going to that's gonna trigger the, the autoresponder where, where it sends you that guidebook. Awesome tool. Definitely recommend it. If you're listening to the audio version, look out for the video version where I just bumped the table and you can see the camera shaking a little bit. Also, you can join the email list over at soccercoachbookclub.com to get email alerts and everything like that. Thank you, and we are signing off. Omar signed off about 10 minutes ago, but now I am signing off too. <laughs>